Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 12th of April. Um, we're going to have this out to you tomorrow, which is the 13th of April. Uh, uh, we've had a lot of guests on the past few weeks, and we wanted to restore it back to the core of the show, which is me, Tammy, and Andy. Both of them are here with me today. We ha- are going to talk mostly today about what happened in Bessemer, Alabama with the Amazon unionization effort, but we're going to try to be pretty expansive within that one topic and talk about, I don't know, a lot of things that have been written and a lot of the blame that's been going around and a lot of the rationalizations that have been taking place and a lot of the positives I think that we might be able to still take out of what ended up being a somewhat disappointing situation. So Tammy, Andy, how are you guys doing? Good. How are you guys doing? Good. It's really rainy here in the city, but it's nice. It's like the Pacific Northwest right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Memories. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we're fine here. I don't know. I'm starting to get bored again, but everyone's <laughs> bored. And bored doesn't even seem like a right term just because, you know, everyone's still getting sick. Yeah. But everyone here is just getting prepared for like a month from now or something when I think most people around here will be vaccinated. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, there's all this stuff going around with people like, oh, it's going to be crazy and it's going to be wild. Maybe mm-hmm. it's just my age, but I just don't see it, you know? <laughs> I don't really go to bars and stuff. And obviously I'm married with a kid, so it's not like I'm gonna going out being like, all right, let's get it on. But um, <laughs> get it on. is that what 25-year-old Kate would say? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if that's what I would say at 25, but, you know, that's what's been going around as part of the... Uh, conversation on what people are going to do. I was just like, uh, I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe people will just kind of still be scared and you know hesitant to do things. But then again, I maybe I you know there are people who have been eating indoors for months now. So yeah, yeah, um, that's true. Maybe that's different. I still I mean, haven't eaten indoors. It's kind of freaky reading the headlines, like mentally knowing that now the British variant and the and all the super variants are the ones that are spreading everywhere right yeah so you're reading these headlines and that would be like terrible news like two months ago three months ago maybe but on the other hand i think a lot of us and a lot of our friends and we just like we know the vaccine is coming or have already gotten some of the vaccine so i think uh, um like our brains can't really balance these two Um, yeah dooms i don't pay any attention to variant (laughs) discussions Yeah. yeah or like whether or not like this this Variant is resistant to this vaccine. It seems like most of the science says that if you're vaccinated, you're going to yeah. be relatively productive or protected. So it seems like the conversation should just be how do we get more people around right. the world vaccinated? Yeah, um, I hope so. Oh my gosh. And that conversation seems, you know, completely bottlenecked around patent questions, which, you know, are huge questions that are not just like, policing people's individual behavior yeah um and so then i'm just like all right you know uh hopefully they do the right thing all right so bessemer a lot has been written about this tammy you wrote something about it recently right or you you wrote something about uh jane mcalevy's book right and jane mcalevy seems to have taken a centerpiece within the conversation about bessemer for those who don't know jane Actually, Tammy, why don't you tell us because you reviewed her book? Who is Jane McAlevey? Sure. So I didn't get I didn't get to write anything about Bessemer, but um, I wrote about Jane's third book last year, 
And Jane McAlevey is the kind of labor organizing guru type person who leads strike workshops. She's, especially in DSA labor, um, something of a touchstone because um, her whole thing is No Shortcuts. That's her second book. And it's all about how you can't take shortcuts in labor organizing. Like you have to do one-on-one meetings. You have to, you know, get like 80, 90% before you go into a union election, like very old school, like on the ground, grassroots style, democratic labor organizing, which I think the three of us really support and is generally like a very, very good thing to say. Um, But she's also kind of arrogant and like very (laughs) committed to her own model. And so we can get it. Well, let's get in that a little bit. Yeah. So that's uh, what, well, I mentioned that because like her postmortem on Bessemer is this like 3000 word piece that she published in the nation that obviously was pre-written because it came out as soon as the Amazon vote Uh, was counted which was a devastating loss for the workers as people probably saw in the news. Right. So to set the, let's set the, yeah. let's set the scene first, which is that um, in case you weren't paying attention, I imagine if you're listening to this, you were the workers in Bessemer, <laughs> Alabama, which were supported by everyone from Bernie Sanders to Danny Glover to kind of Joe Biden, who <laughs> made like this very vague Definitely. statement about it, um, went to vote on whether or not they would unionize. Uh, you know, from the early on, it seemed like, this was going to be an uphill battle for them, mm-hmm. right? And in the end, I would say that it fell short of most people's even pessimistic uh, expectations. Like the vote was basically what two and a half to one, I would say, against unionization. Um, and then right after that happened, that's when a lot of the sort of finger pointing and blame started to be assessed. And um, I wouldn't even say it's all like negative stuff. A lot of it, I think, was constructive. Uh, questions about like you know why did this happen this was like the most publicized union drive that i can remember um in recent history right i mean i can't like outside of teacher strikes um which you know were all around the country like in terms of just one location this was certainly the most publicized in recent unless i'm forgetting something because amazon is a such a you know it's part of that towering heights of the economy right and it's it's, uh, yeah so and they've Jane, crushed all their other campaigns to date. Like this one kind of got the farthest and it's so many workers, you know, 6,000 worker warehouse complex. I mean, that's just huge. Right. So Jane McAlevey, right after, as Tammy said, right after the vote failed, published a piece in The Nation and it was sort of looking at why it failed. She said uh, in the piece, quote, three factors weigh heavily in any unionization election. The outrageously vicious behavior of the employers, some of it illegal, most fully legal, including harassing and intimidating workers and telling bold lies, which outside of countries with openly repressive government is unique to the United States. The strategies and tactics used in the campaign by the organizers and the broader social political context in which the union election is being held. Um, And so, I don't know, reading through this article, uh, you know, just to quickly paraphrase, you know, she was saying that the first thing is that, yeah, Amazon did everything in its power, as it usually does, to break this unionization attempt. Mm-hmm. But her real focus, I think, you know, and the thing reason why she wrote it is because she was looking at the tactics of the organizers themselves. And, you know, one of the things she said was that they didn't have a full list of people, right, and that you need a full list to go through for, Tammy, what's like a, what, what's this list thing? Yeah. So the, in an ideal union campaign, you know every single worker that's eligible, you know, the structure and like the arrangement of the workforce, you know, their shifts that they're on. And so 
she says that in this particular campaign, they didn't have like a good enough starting kit basically to get going. Um, there are different like wonky rules around this, like in um, some more friendly union contexts, there's actually obligations for the employer to disclose a list. Um, but otherwise, like union organizers have various strategies of constructing it, mostly through talking to tons of workers until you can construct the list. Um, obviously, we're here in in the Alabama context. It's in a right to work state, which makes all of this like extremely tricky, which we can get into. But yeah, the list that but was she, like, number one. Her claim was essentially that like uh, they did not have an good enough list to go forward with this, right? Because there yeah. are 6,000 workers and they sort of only accounted for what seems like 1,500 of the workers at first. Yeah. And then they had to scramble to get the other 4,500 workers uh, on board. The second part, and I think this was the most interesting thing to me, and I think it's the most telling of, you know, McElvey's work is that she said that they just didn't do enough door knocking and face-to-face type of stuff. And that's sort of the core of her argument, right? Like you can't cheat this. You can't take shortcuts. You have to do this all face-to-face. And she said that the reason was that they gave was because of the coronavirus pandemic, right? But that that's not an excuse. And that her corollary to this was the Georgia special Senate election where she said that, you know, people put on masks and they just went door to door anyway, you know? Um, and that you can't, if you're trying to do something very hard, and this is one of the key things, you can't just not do it and hope that the world forgives you because uh, because of the pandemic. Um, what what do you think about this point, Tammy? Yeah, so she's right. I mean, in that you need to have FaceTime with workers, you need to sit down with people repeatedly, you need to do one-on-one outreach, not just the union organizer, like the staff organizer with the workers, but workers with one another. However, I think there's there's in defense of RWDSU, so the Retail Wholesale Department Store Union, which was the union that that led this effort. I think it wasn't. It seems like it wasn't just the coronavirus stuff, but it was the the overall structure of the warehouse and the timeline that they were put on. So perhaps you know Jane would say they rush into this election. Um, my understanding from the reporting of people who've been down there, and I, I should say that I haven't done any original reporting on this, so I'm just talking to you know, this is based on my reading and organ- conversations with a lot of organizers, but that essentially this was called a hot shop campaign, meaning that it was the workers themselves who had reached out to RW to try to get a union. And for various reasons, they had put themselves on a particular timeline in which it just was like very, very hard to get this, to reach out to this many people. So I think we can, you know, we can kind of talk later about like, what are the structural constraints of this sort of ambitious organizing? Um, but yeah, I think like I don't I doubt anyone at RW would be like we didn't want to do right. one-on-ones. We didn't right. want to have FaceTime with these workers. Is the is the short time frame like a strategic thing like they thought they want to get the vote quickly before Amazon could like intervene and so there's like that's the balancing act they have to have right between long-term strategy and uh, kind of getting it in before Amazon like messes things up. Is that, is that right? Exactly. Yeah. And here, I think all the more so. And so there were two things here. I think one is like, on the one hand, you're dealing with like the most vicious 
and powerful employer in the world. <laughs> so obviously you need to like move at a speed where the organizing will keep pace with their anti-union efforts. But then the other kind of weird countervailing part of this was that the union election took place over almost two months mm-hmm. because there were so many workers, which gave the, the, the um, employer a lot of time to try to bust the union. Right. So it kind of was like a hurry up and then wait situation, you know, for them. So, you yeah. know, I sympathize with that. Like, it's I'm- like so hard. Amazon infamously made them vote on this artificial deadline that didn't really exist. So, like, once they got someone to commit to no, they made them vote and made them think like they had to vote now instead of waiting for another month or so before the real deadline, right? Exactly. So, a lot of the, based on the reporting and what organizers have said, a lot of the no votes were on the front end. Yeah. With that mailbox, which we could talk about. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because it did seem like she, you know, when I read this article, I was just like, well, how much of this is specific to this one situation where she's basically broadly applying her hobby horses, which might be right, you know, I don't mean it in a dismissive way. Um, and And how much of it is like, how many more votes do you get when the final tally is what it was by knocking on doors, right? Like, uh, does that overcome that margin? I don't think so, you know, but, you know, but her assessment isn't that either. Her assessment is that, well, they failed on multiple fronts and all those put together is what leads to the, uh, what might've been a tight race, regardless, even in the most optimistic mm-hmm. projection that this ends, ends up being what it was. The last thing that she mentions, and this is, I was also interested in this as well, is that the majority of the people who work in the Bessemer plan are black women. Um, and, that uh, local groups that Jane had reached out to over phone said that basically organizers didn't reach out to them. And these are, and I, what I'm talking about in terms of organizers, not like other social justice organizations or labor organizations, or labor organizations. I'm talking about like churches. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, uh, McAlevey gives this interesting history about how in Detroit, you know, a lot of the black uh, auto workers were opposed to the union at first. Um, and that uh, when they went to unionize, really the thing that helped was going to like church leaders and talking to them. And that um, that the people doing the Amazon thing really didn't have much concern about them or that they hadn't been reached out to. And the quote is that from the article is, in Bessemer, local community groups that I reached by phone told me that this was the first union campaign they could remember when the union reached out for the first time so late in the campaign, as late as February. In other elections in the area, even if even the Tuscaloosa Mercedes Auto Plants plant election, where the plant was 50 miles away from the city, a lot farther than Bessemer from Birmingham, the unions tended to reach out long before the workers even went public in the campaign. Um, what, what, what do you think about this? Like uh, what what? Michael Levy is saying is a failure here. Yeah. So I obviously can't confirm or deny, you know, what the union did in terms of the community campaign, but I think tied into this critique, which is definitely like a McAlevian critique because she's through her union organizing career had been very committed to the idea of community labor campaigns and involving faith-based communities because they are so much a part of people's lives. And I think that's right. Um, I think, so what she says in the article, in addition to this, is that 
the quote unquote community campaign that RW seemed to advertise was much more kind of like media friendly. Like you mentioned Glover and Biden and Sanders. So there were all these kind of like celebrities who had flown in to say like, oh yeah, the community supports us. But in fact, like the local community perhaps wasn't as engaged. So, I mean, if that's the case, that is, that's pretty deadly. I mean, I think again, though, we're also talking about a corporation that like doesn't operate in kind of the usual ways where like if you have a local corporation that you're doing a union campaign against, they are susceptible to certain pressures that are local. It's not clear to me that something like Amazon would necessarily buckle under that kind of pressure. Yeah. Right. Yeah, go ahead, Andy. No, I was just thinking this conversation is like giving me a lot of deja vu in terms of postmortems discussing um, when, when, when the Sanders campaign wouldn't win certain states. Um, and yeah. like uh, South Carolina, yeah, South Carolina, that's the obvious <laughs> yeah. one, right? Or the, the rest of the South, basically. I know. <laughs> and, um, I mean, to go back to those numbers, Jay, I, when you're talking just now, I was thinking like, you know, like in sports analysis, when one team just loses by so much, right? It's almost like <laughs> hard to even think about, well, they had a 50, 50 chance to win in the first place, right? Like maybe this, the result could make you think, um, th- to think about actually how was this, such an uphill battle to begin with. Um, right. And maybe that's a takeaway. That's one takeaway rather than saying like, you had like a 50, 50% chance and you blew it. Right. Which, which might be some people, you know, some people's um, maybe impressionistic takeaway um, mm. without looking more deeply into it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it yeah. was 50, 50, um, but I don't think it was like three to one either. Right. Um, uh, but I also, you know, the question is like within the sports question would be like within the expected <laughs> uh, outcomes, like how did you fare? Right? right. And why did you, why did you go either way? Was it because you missed a lot of threes? Was it because you got lucky and hit a lot of threes? Whatever. Right. <laughs> so if you use that lens, um, I don't know, like maybe they did better than they were supposed to do, but if they were supposed to do so poorly, then was it even worth, you know, going through this process and marshalling all these national resources, like that's another question to be asked. I mean, I think, I think most of the people, even the ones who are very sympathetic to the organizing groups would say that this was a bad result, right? Given expectations. I don't know. Am I wrong about that, Tammy? I think, I think definitely there is that contingent, but I think actually there is a fair number of people who would say like, this is an entirely expected result and it would have been, very difficult to expect anything else for like kind of a first campaign against Amazon of this scale. Right. You know, I I mean, I think another thing with like thinking about the community context is the wages are so low in Alabama. There's so little development in this area that people were taught to sort of be grateful for this $15. Right. And, um, that looks like a lot of money. And so I think also, um, you know, I mean, you would obviously expect like a chamber of commerce in a local area to be very pro-corporate, but the black chamber of commerce in this area was like entirely supportive of Amazon, you know? So kind of also our expectations around like community around racial progress are kind of subverted in this like time when capital is so powerful and so cruel. And we just haven't raised up like just baseline standards in certain states where a unionization campaign kind of like the logic of it would make sense to people. Right. And it it does remind me of Sanders in South Carolina as well, where it seems like a lot of the anger from, you know, the media left is about, you know, how could these groups, right, which are supposed to protect black people and black workers, like, how could they possibly vote against something in their best interest? And you're like, listen, you don't know what the best interests are because you're tweeting this from New York, you know, (laughs) and like you, 
Like, I, I don't know. I found it so offensive during, you know, not to relitigate all this, but during the South Carolina stuff where they're, you know, like there are all these attacks on Clyburn. And look, I don't think that, I don't think that Clyburn, I, I would have preferred if Clyburn endorsed Bernie Sanders, you know? But uh, I don't know. There are also mistakes made by the Sanders campaign in handling South Carolina, which everybody understands, sure. right, at this point. And to do this sort of like paternalistic, like you don't even look out for yourself. You're a sellout type. I don't know. It's just like uh, if you aren't doing the work and as, you know, if we believe McAlevey's reporting, which I have no reason not to, it's like if you don't reach out to the actual infrastructure that influences people and can get them to vote in blocks, right? And you just hope that like bringing in celebrities or big people and having this big national social media campaign is going to convince those people. It's not. It reminds me actually of when DeRay McKesson ran for mayor of Baltimore, right? Mm. And um, he was like, well, I'm the most famous person here. I have all these Twitter stuff and I have all (laughs) these donors from, uh, I've raised the most money because I have all these donors, you know, from around the country. And then in the end, it's just like, no, Baltimore is a city that that votes based on infrastructure based on its churches its community organizations its people who have large influence and people vote because they trust the person who is organizing that group right whether it's a church or whatever and that's a way that you know marginalized groups in america have most effectively wielded political power if you don't at least sit down at the table with them and then in the end all you do is scold them then you're not trying to win you know, and I think that that was a compelling part of Mac. I think that's essentially what McAlevey's argument boils down to, right? Which is just like all this Twitter stuff doesn't matter. All this media stuff doesn't matter. All this uh, celebrity stuff doesn't matter. All that matters is that like you do these five steps, which are all like difficult and require a lot of face-to-face time. Um, and yet, I don't know. There also seems to be something kind of nostalgic about that, right? Yeah. Like it's like, well, um, <laughs> How do we marshal tools then, right, that do influence so many people? How do we marshal massive national attention? And if none of that can help and it only budges the, uh, the, what's it called? Barometer? No, not Overturn window? What are you doing? (laughs) Not overturn window. (laughs) (laughs) If it budges the decision, um, like by a couple percentage points, then like, you know, like where are we going to use our influence and our power? Right. And I think she would say, well, you should just go down to Bessemer and help them with that effort. But, uh, you know, um, I don't know, maybe that is the answer. Tell me what do you think? Or Andy, what do you think? Well, sorry. I mean, just to add on to that, there was that line, I'm I'm trying to look her in the article, but I think you all know what I'm talking about. In the article, she takes one or two paragraphs to kind of especially call out the media and probably the yeah. thing that most of our listeners know, which I only all, which is all I know, also just like people on Twitter talking about Bessemer, right. and she almost is arguing that it was counterproductive, and that mm-hmm. caught my attention. I don't know what to think about it. I'd be curious to hear what you all think. Like, is there something counterproductive about? Um, uh, I don't know, like Brooklyn-based, <laughs> like pro-socialist Brooklyn-based writers <laughs> tweeting about Bessemer all the time. Well, it's funny know. because she actually either she or her editor specifically linked to like three different labor reporters and their reports on Amazon. (laughs) And I, so in defense of them, obviously I felt a little stung by this personally, but anyway, in defense of them, what I would say is that first of all, there's not that many labor reporters who are actually trying to do this work. And like, I think a lot of them want to do the best they can. And I think there's something in this kind of like labor reporting, advocacy reporting arena where you are, you are both, 
describing what's happened, but you're also prescribing and affecting the discourse, right? And so I think they have that in their minds. And so she's saying, you told too much of a positive story that was disconnected from the reality on the ground. And I think they would say, we tried to describe what we saw when we went and to highlight the positives of it, right? And I think, you know, the other part of it is when you're talking about a union buster as powerful as Amazon, sometimes those national media reports and videos and things actually are really important because they circulate on Facebook and reach workers who are stuck in captive audience meetings with their bosses telling them, like, if you vote yes, you're going to be fired. Or, you know, they're on the midnight shift and they have, like, you know, one positive person, union positive person out of 200 on that shift, and so they might see a stray tweet or something, you know, so I do, I think it's complicated. Like, yes, of course we should try to be as realistic as possible and to do our jobs to report out facts, but also like what we do is actually really powerful and can change people's minds. Yeah. yeah I think that there's too much of this now, you know, where like uh, anything that fails that yeah. basically a certain cohort of people on Twitter want to happen when it doesn't <laughs> fail or when it, when it fails, they get blamed for it. And they're like, it's your fault. It's because everyone hates the media and they're going to do the exact opposite of what the media thinks. Like you see it around the Andrew Yang campaign quite a bit, you know, just like, <laughs> yeah, keep trolling him. Now, the person who says that is me. You know, so I should, I should take some. I should take some. It's impossible not to. Responsibility talk about it. for that. Yeah. But like, uh, you know, because I was just like, well, you know, most people don't trust you guys. And if you guys are freaking out about every time you, tweets and that's gonna make a lot of people like just be like oh yeah if these people hate him then he must be great you know but (laughs) i think that's a bit overdetermined and probably is coming out of my own you know um displeasures more than anything else just like well you know like yes let's say that that twitter has no effect right or that left twitter has no effect on any of this then it should have no effect right it's not like it it has no effect, and there, therefore it's a negative. It should just be there's no effect. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So the line she says is, the media, especially the genre of media called labor media, which is like so condescending. And then she says, when media folks prioritize clicks and followers over reality, it doesn't help workers and probably hurts them. I want, Yeah, I wonder how much of this is just personal, like some, or generational even. Like, I, right. Like, yeah, I think I it's just her being cranky about, um, about, about people she doesn't people who have a fantastical vision of labor and she's like the grizzled veteran now i think that she's right about that you know (laughs) but but like no she her assessment is right right there are a lot of people in media and people who tweet about this stuff who have no real who have no experience with any of this right and they don't understand the challenges and by constantly cheerleading Maybe they did give too rosy of an assessment of it, but then what is what would a dire assessment of it done? Would have gotten more people down there to knock on doors? Um, maybe, but like uh, probably not, right? And so um, uh, I don't know. The only thing I'll say is that like just viewing this from afar before I really dug into it, just from having my impressions through the media and through social media, I thought this was in the bag. Yeah. You know, I was like, oh yeah, they're of course they're going to win. Yeah, you know. And so maybe it, there is some sort of like, uh, yeah, you know, I don't know what some people thought was like the Hillary effect where everyone thought because she was so ahead in the polls that Hillary is going to win. So they didn't go out to vote. Now, I don't think that actually happened, <laughs> but that was the, uh, a theory. I think that's sort of what she's saying here. Right. Yeah. Like that's sort of her theory about this. Now, gotcha. I don't find it particularly convincing. 
Um, but I also don't know how I don't see the flip side defense, which would be like, actually, no, it was really, really helpful for this to happen. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I just also don't know like what effect we, you know, me living, me sitting in Philadelphia was going to have either way. Uh, I don't know, like if it was about like contributing more money or I don't know, like mm-hmm. ultimately it's up to the workers. Right. And that's what it comes down to. And um, as if you like read about like the conditions where they work and have like no free time and then are bombarded with all this messaging. And it really is up to the union organizers to just kind of um, get in a word, you know, what, where they can in the margins of their everyday lives. Then like, I don't understand, like, um, you know, I don't understand what anyone on the outside could do to No, I mean, I agree. Like maybe, you know, to just to like police your friends, like we should all stop living in a fantasy world that the world is actually, um, going in the right direction when we should be realistic about all the sort of difficulties that are going on. But um, yeah, I don't know if there's a connection between like our behavior and like what happened in in Alabama. Yeah. I think like reading the labor press or the labor media that she denigrates in the piece, um, the signs were definitely there that a loss was coming, you know, because especially people were talking in that voting period of, you know, it seemed like it was front loaded with negative votes. Um, and also that the fact that the list was incomplete and that they didn't have like a, a super majority of cards was, was a known fact. So all of those are warning signs, but I think it's all, like, I, I personally was also like, was still like, okay, it could happen or it could be a failure that propels us. Like, I think the thing with Jane's analyses a lot of the times is she sort of says that if we have these 10 tools and we apply all 10 of them perfectly, we will always win. And I, I don't think it's true. I mean, I just yeah. think those tools can sometimes change. Also, there are times where we like, do all everything right and we still lose. It's just very hard. And I think when you're talking about Amazon or before at Walmart, you know, these are these are essentially kind of vertically and horizontally integrated corporate mega corporations that have a structure that is so impenetrable, like none of us have figured it out. Like no one knows what will work in a campaign like this. And so, right, right. yeah, and I have a lot of sympathy of like, yeah, well we tried, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's very like sector dependent, right? So yeah. Yeah. I think that when there's been so much great unionization of media outlets recently, right? In the past 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, in those instances, yeah, it really does work to have social media pressure on these institutions, right? Because they are very, very sure. public <laughs> and they're very afraid of having a bad reputation along these lines. Now, does Amazon give a shit about some people's tweets in, in an industry that they don't really care about? Absolutely not. Yeah. You know, And so <laughs> um, I think that that uh, but at the same time, I don't, you know, I don't know if you feel strongly about this unionization effort and you have a large platform, then you should let it be known, you know, and, and I don't know if the analysis to both really applies. I think that just saying, oh, well, social media pressure or people tweeting about it or big media people tweeting about it will never work isn't true. But it is true in this instance, right? But um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I think that there are What's- many industries that would be very, very uh, maybe not many, but they're, you know, podcasting, for example, that totally worked, right? Like, uh, um, in in results. Yeah. Well, no, sure. Sure. So there are, there are instances where it does work. And I think that her, I don't know what the thing that I, I did not read this third book of hers, but the thing that I reading her nation article and sort of digging in a little bit, I was just like, um, you know, it almost feels like a theological and 
her assessment of these things, right? Yeah. Like it's like so prescriptive word, and it's so like tablets from the mount. If you, you know, if you violate any of the 10 commandments and you're going to, you know, be a wage slave forever <laughs> type of thing, uh, you'll wander the desert of like $8 an hour. But, um, but I don't know. I also, I would say that I say that in turn as, as somebody who actually mostly agrees with, with what she's saying. Um, I just think she's maybe a bit too prescriptive about that one point. Um, yeah, Tammy, about that, like in your review of her third book in The Nation, you wrote, the downside of a book intended to inspire is that it omits the campaigns that failed, those in which whole worker organizing didn't succeed. Surely there are times when no matter how well union organizers chart a community or identify organic leaders or treat workers as networked organisms, they lose anyway. Reading A Collective Bargain, that's a name of her book, I wondered what we might learn from such campaigns and whether some contexts such as construction day labor and informal domestic work might require an alternative to CIO style organizing. Now, that, that, that's the thing that sort of made me the most interested in this. And it's something that I thought about a lot when, you know, even last week when I was talking to Assad Hader, right, which was just like, okay, so we have these concept, concepts and that are built basically on the factory floors in the 1950s, right? Um, we have workplace environments where half the workers are black, half the workers are white, for, you know, just as an example. Mm -hmm. And so is there a racial politics that comes out of it? Of course there is, you know? Is there a common enemy that one can identify in this? Of course there is, you know? Do most of the people, have most of the people grown up in the United States and born in the United States and have a context of America and, America's own like racial apartheid. Of course they do, right? Especially in the 1950s. Of course they do, right? Um, and yet we are in a completely different economy right now yeah. in a lot of ways, and that we have completely different demographics in the country. So, like, uh, um, obviously those ideas have to be updated. They can't be doctrinaire. Uh, so I don't know, Tammy. Like, what is is that? What you're yeah. sort of getting at with this passage? Yeah, I mean, definitely that there may be different things that different histories from home countries and other labor experiences that people are bringing to the floor when they are immigrants, but also just this idea of like different, as you were kind of saying with the sectors, like how different sectors and different sizes and different places demand different things. And so it just may not be the case that charting out a campaign according to the most orthodox principles of democratic unionism or whole worker organizing will like do the trick. And I'm not saying that it wouldn't have worked in, in this context. I mean, obviously, you know, to her credit, like uh, her article, you know, a good third of it mostly just attacks this legislative framework that we're in the legal framework that we're in, which makes unionizing so difficult. It makes it so easy for Amazon to crush us. Right. But at the same time, like, I think like we can learn from this failure. I think like we'll probably have to fail a bunch more times before we get an Amazon warehouse organized. Um, you guys might have also seen on Twitter or elsewhere um, this group Amazonians United, which mm -hmm. is much more of like a non-traditional kind of like wobbly style organizing campaign where they have people salting, meaning like getting jobs in Amazon warehouses in order to organize them, not for the job itself. So people are salting in Chicago, in Minneapolis, in Queens, and trying to develop like independent unions in those spaces. Um, in a way, they're kind of like opposed to RWDSU and like what was attempted in Bessemer. And they would say like, yeah, we have to do it our way in this much more kind of like left-wing anarchistic way that doesn't have a relationship with a large national union. 
But, you know, there are obviously drawbacks to that. Like, that's relatively small scale. They often don't have enough resources to go big, et cetera, et cetera. But I mentioned that because it's like we have Amazonians United. We have RWDSU campaigns. We have Athena, which is like community organizing, like policy campaigns. We have antitrust people working on Amazon. And we need like all of that. Yeah. You know, because it's so big and we have no idea like how to do this. Yeah, I mean, I think we should. I, I'd be curious. To, obviously, I think we should talk more about the PRO Act that's in Congress. But I almost feel like to lead into it, um, I have to confess, like, reading up on this, I don't actually, I didn't really know, like, all the, the lead legislative history of how unions came to be in the U.S. and all the sort of the way that certain laws were brought into place in the 30s and then later in, in the 70s to protect unions. So unionization is a relatively new thing in U.S. history anyway. It's really starting in the 50s is kind of the high point. And I guess with the PRO Act, you know, you wrote you wrote about it also, Tammy, that, um, you know, the National Labor Relations Act protects the right to unionize, but it, I guess it doesn't protect enough. And, and companies like Amazon take advantage of that uh, in terms of like inundating their workers with propaganda, forcing them to listen to all these anti-union, union-busting firms messaging and so on um so i mean do you want to kind of i guess perhaps spell out like what exactly is legal and illegal or what what exactly are are, are workers allowed to do and what are what, what could what could amazon do to stop them yeah so jane's totally right that most of the tactics that amazon used to dissuade people from voting for the union are entirely legal and that includes forcing workers off of their shift into a room to be lectured at by lawyers or bosses who are saying like you don't want the union to come between us you know you don't need a union we're a family here or you don't want to pay your your me your meager wages toward dues etc um so that that's you know captive audience meetings harassment all that stuff is currently you know essentially legal. Um, the National Labor Relations Act was brought into um, law in 1935 and progressively weakened, and we're now at the point where 28 states, I believe it is right now, are right to work states, meaning that where there are unions, they have the responsibility to represent all workers, but the workers don't even have to pay them for the cost of negotiating the contract. So in right to work states, like unions are super weak because they can't like fund themselves basically to exist. Um, the PRO Act would eliminate right to work. I mean, that is like the biggest thing, right? Like we would actually have, a, you know, I mean, a level playing field isn't quite right yeah. given our economy, but we would have now all states where workers like are in unions that, that actually act like unions. Um, and it would ban captive audience meetings and various forms of harassment. It would clean up some of the elections rules to make things more streamlined so that workers could go into elections in a speedy and efficient way where they're not harassed. Um, it would do so many things. Um, it would allow freelancers like Jay and me to have collective bargaining rights with fellow freelancers. It's just like it's a marvelous omnibus fix law, basically. And it's totally essential to the progress of workers. And this has been... Trying to be people have tried to pass this for a long time now. This isn't the first time people have written a Yeah, it's this. been, I mean, a version of it. Like it's when we, the three of us, were in high school and early college, it was called something else. There have been a bunch of NLRA fixes over the years. Okay. This one, you know, now has been passed in, in the House and is in the Senate, but the chances of it passing in the Senate this year are basically nil. Does it, I mean, do you think this is signaling some sort of shift in national consciousness or because uh, this is something that a lot of these readings were raising, which is, on the one hand, union levels are like every year is worse than the last year, basically, for the last 30 years, yeah. 40 years. On the other hand, there does seem to be a lot more mainstream discussions about 
identifying as labor, right, rather than just like as a freelancer yeah. or as an entrepreneur. And um, yeah, and talk about like labor and class consciousness and working in class consciousness. Um, maybe that's just like the media chattering classes we just <laughs> denigrated, but um, I think that's. I mean, what, why no, is? I the... think that's real, don't you? Well, guys? yeah. I mean, this is like you know, according to a lot of polls, this is like the highest support that labor has had ever in the history of the country mm. um, in terms of people thinking that unions are a good idea. Um, yeah. And how do you square the, that with the fact that unionization is falling? I mean, it's like. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't doubt that, that 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 people are sincere. I just wonder, like, is this a crossroads? Well, is this like an impasse that like one side has to budge, and ten years from now mm-hmm. maybe there'll be a huge uptick? I don't I don't really know. I think the way that I see it is essentially that the economy right now is is, is basically you are an Uber driver or you work at Amazon. You know that that's a large portion of the population, and that on one side it's very difficult to. Um, especially in right-to-work states, to organize a very wide, disparate group of gig economy workers, right? And on the other hand, you have these incredibly powerful companies that, uh, where, that have so much power politically that uh, that also makes it very difficult. And so, like, I know, it's not like uh, United... I mean, auto companies obviously were extremely powerful, but that was a huge fight. Um, yeah. But it was also during different conditions. I just think that, like, essentially, if you can, yeah, no, no, this is seen as a first step towards a long process that ends up with Amazon being unionized, then, you know, like, then that's going to be a huge chunk of the work population that is at that point, right? Yeah. And that you have, but the, right now you have that friction between those two poles. Um, and as, and, you know, every day that passes, it becomes more and more polarized, I think, right? Like, I mean, more and more people enter the gig economy and more and more people go to work at these huge corporations. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Tammy, is that like a correct assessment? I think, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think the gig, so the gig economy piece is both sort of, it is growing like concretely so that we don't have good like Bureau of Labor Statistics and Census data on it because like what the definition of the gig economy is, is like quite fuzzy. But even if we just look at like 10 people who have 1099s in some form, like it's probably like five to 15% of all workers. So it's relatively small compared to W2 wage earners, but it, it, but it's certainly growing. And yeah, if you're in the gig economy, like you have no unionizing rights at all right now, you know? So like I couldn't, join a traditional union like I am in the freelance solidarity project and try to do other forms of organizing but like we're not like recognized under the national relations act um and then yeah we have this kind of amazon economy which is also in a way kind of hard to describe I mean you have like obviously like really rich white collar workers and kind of like medium white collar worker medium wage white collar workers and then you have all these kind of like logistics and distribution people um, and manufacturing people and all of this stuff is either directly under amazon or you know filtered through a bajillion different subcontractors Mm -hmm. (laughs) so what that what it means to kind of like organize that to identify like the different like choke points in the economy around that is it is really really hard um the public sector employment and unionization has stayed relatively steady. So most mm. of the union members in the country are private sector, but the percentage for the public sector is way, way higher than right. in the private sector. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder how much, I don't know if we want to delve into this, but I was thinking about this, obviously, from a historical perspective and thinking more about, like, what are the long-term trends? And, uh, you know, this is perhaps, like, reflective of just, like, my 
the way I think about the world. I wasn't thinking so much in terms of like, what could people have done better? It was more like, what are the objective um, massive forces that are standing in the way? Yeah. Um, and, and, and maybe some of them could be amenable to change in the future and maybe this breakthrough will happen. But, you know, I was thinking about, um, you know, there's, there's one, one of the really good labor reporting that I thought was from Lauren Cowardy Gurley from Vice Media, yeah, who did a podcast, crazy. yeah, on 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 the whole drive, and it begins with basically an economic history of Bessemer, which I think is useful because it was you know it was founded as basically a steel slash mining town, so it was industrial in the very beginning. Like the Bessemer city is named after the person who invented Bessemer steel, and then like a lot of these cities in the U.S., right? They go they deindustrialize, the mining dries up, steel mm-hmm. goes elsewhere. Um, you know, Asia <laughs> and <laughs> always. And yeah, I think the situation for, and, and so it was like the, the chamber of commerce. So like the local business leaders who brought in Amazon as a savior to, for unemployment within the totally. city. So I think there's, and it might be racial or it could also just be like civic, the sense of like all the workers who are working at Amazon don't want to let their town down. Right. Or they don't want to, they know that their city leaders their mayor, their business leaders invited Amazon to come in in the first place. So they might have loyalty or mixed emotions that way. Um, you know, and this is, and Amazon, you know, as we know from like the Long Island city fight, you know, a few years ago was like, like Amazon does this. They just go from city to city around the world, um, just like a lot of companies and ask what tax breaks you can give us to, yeah. to let us take advantage of, of your workforce. And so I think that has to also be on the minds of a lot of these workers that if they unionize, I mean, what if they unionize? Can Amazon just close shop? Is that illegal? Right. So yeah, of course they can. Yeah, they can just leave. Totally. Know? Yeah. So and, I, it's, um, and it could be declared illegal by the National Relations Board, and nothing would happen. They can't. Yeah, you know, yeah, so. They can't exactly. stop them, right? That's what's so shitty, and that's also the Pro Act would actually like put in place like meaningful penalties, which don't exist right now. But for, um, what's a meaningful penalty for Amazon? Like a trillion dollars. Well, that's, that's I mean, I, mean. It's I like think a, that's, it's like that's an a really good fine or yeah. something like that for like you exactly. get a fine for criticizing the rest and they're like, yeah. uh, man, we're going to give you a big one, 20 grand. And then the owner just I pays know. it. You know? And the guy's like, I don't know. I make 30 million a year. Yeah. You know? Totally. <laughs> I'm going to um, get off this take. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, like, I don't know what a meaningful mo- fine would be. I actually was thinking about about that and right now there's, there's not question. even like a parking ticket that you give them exactly. right? like they can just leave and the nlrb can just be like you weren't supposed to do that and amazon's like okay essentially <laughs> we just did uh we kind of like the in, the interior design of this warehouse site better and that's why we did it we did we promised we didn't do it, it. Has nothing to do yeah. with right to work yeah, yeah yeah and that and that would totally fly it seems like right yeah yeah um so, so yeah that this point about like nostalgia, Jay, seems like, you know, Jane kind of being nostalgic for a different period. I think that's something to think about. Right, right. But then that bring, but then that leads to such a bleak view of things, <laughs> right? Which is essentially that in towns like Bassemer, where the industry is gone, that they that people are so that they need Amazon in a way where no sort of fight for better wages or anything like that can occur because there's no alternative. And I think that what Jane would say maybe is that like, uh, you know, we should actually be more aware of those types of conditions and that we should organize around those types of conditions being like, look, you, you can't, you know, you have to ask for better things. You have value. You're not just like, Mm -hmm. this is not like the last stop on the railroad or else like the whole town goes under and you have to move to new Orleans or something like that. 
Um, well, but and- I don't know. It, it, I, Andy, I agree. It's a difficult thing that people don't really like to think about, which is that like, you know, I don't think Long Island City is necessarily analogous to this because it's within the city of New York, right? But yeah, you know, totally different like situation. Best, but like, what is what really are the people of Bessemer going to do if, right. if Amazon picks up and leaves, right? Like, what's going to replace yeah. it? Um, there's really not any jobs. Yeah, right. And I think yeah. So the fear of the warehouse shutdown certainly has to have been front of mind for all of the workers. But you know, I mean, obviously, but history also has lessons for us. So like. Every town that Amazon has this kind of density in is, in a way, a company town. And that's, like, extremely frightening. But that was true for steel plants and car plants and everything, even more for so, sure. really, right, yeah. in, in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And and labor militancy still transformed those conditions. And people obviously died and, like, put their entire lives and families and communities on the line to, like, break those employers. And And so, you know, I think Jane would say, like, we also shouldn't think of ourselves as so exceptional as Amazon is like so exceptional in, and we've been through this kind of like trust based monopolistic economy before. Um, You know, I mean, there's all kinds of different caveats to that and stuff, but, but, you know, I mean, I think there, there is, there's truth in that. And like, we need, but, but part of it right now is just figuring out like, what is the argument, like, especially in like distribution and logistics about like why actually this, some of this stuff can't move. Right. And I would, I mean, I think actually that now with, with the speed and just insane, like, you know, one day, two hour, one hour model of, of delivery that Amazon has propagated yeah. that in a way it actually gives workers more power yeah, that's a good because point. like not everything can be offshore anymore. We can't just say, yeah, we're going to put all the distro in China. Like, no, right. We actually can't. Like, they need warehouses in Queens and Staten Island. They need them in Chicago and Aurora because otherwise they can't actually, like, fulfill this delivery yeah, right. plan. And she makes a point, I think, uh, one of these things about how there's, you know, strategic sectors, how the U.S. economy these days, you know, we know there's less manufacturing than ever, more about service, education, healthcare, and those are things mm-hmm. we really can't outsource, although, you know, companies are going to try yeah. their best. Um, so For that sure. is... Yeah, but on the one hand, like on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, the United States is big, you know, and it's going to be hard to unionize every single Amazon facility yeah. in all the fifty states, so that Amazon has no choices, right? Like, they, there's always. I mean, I feel like I, I sound like I'm an Amazon strategist, but I feel like there's always choices for Amazon <laughs> to leave and take advantage of another one, even if they can't go to China, right, or if they can't like uh, go to another country. But, in the world. I mean, that's not necessarily true because of the what Tammy said in terms of the. Distance question, right? If I order a book on Amazon and I want it today or tomorrow, it's not like they can like be like, okay, we're gonna have someone drive from you know Truckee or like uh, Tahoe down to the Bay Area to deliver it, right? Like they do have, they do have pressure on them to be in certain areas around high density populations, and you know, yeah. Um, I think that I don't know why. Why was Bessemer the first? Why was Bessemer the site for for this? I mean, obviously, it was was it because of the workers there were the ones who asked for this, or was it a strategic decision? Yeah, um, I, I think based on reports, our understanding is that it was hot shopped, and it, so it was the workers. I mean, yeah. there have been campaigns to try to unionize Amazon warehouses, also like in Delaware and Pennsylvania, and all right. of those got crushed, um, and other places too. So, but yeah, I mean, six thousand workers, this would have been huge, and it still could be huge. Yeah. Like, I want to believe, like they will attempt this again and with better results. So before it gets to, what is the stage it has to get to that 
like what was the breakthrough in Bessemer that it got to the vote? But what was the what do they have to overcome to get to that vote? And why do you think it happened? As yeah, opposed to Pennsylvania so, or Delaware? Oh yeah. Well, in Pennsylvania and Delaware, I'm trying to remember if they actually got to the voting stage. I think I think maybe they did. I'm, I can't quite remember, but the just the logistical pieces, like you file cards, like signed union cards with the National Relations Board, and then they basically schedule an election under the laws. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think Jane's argument is like, generally, if you want to have a successful campaign, you try to get like 80 or 90 percent of the workers to sign cards, not just like 30 or 40 percent, which is the trigger point for an NLRB election. And so to her, that's like a huge warning sign, which, to be fair, I think is for most union organizers. Like nobody wants to <laughs> file for an election with 35 percent of the workers. Yeah. Um, like, I, you know, we've been talking all on one side of this, which is like what happened um, within the workers and within the organizers of what did they, mm-hmm. they didn't do. Now, I think that the stuff that Amazon does to make this impossible and that the legal system does to make this impossible is pretty well known, so we don't have to relitigate all of this. But the one thing I thought about during this was just like, all right, well, how much are we sort of doing in terms of figuring out the best practices for this, Right. And like, how much are we moving the needle compared to what is against us, right? Yeah. So like, like if you think of it being like, all right, we have eight dudes and they have like 45 people, you know, and they all have guns and we have like a bunch of sticks. And so <laughs> Seriously. Now, is there a way that the eight of us with sticks can take down the 45 of them with guns? <laughs> sure. You know, but like, probably we're going to all die, you know? So um, <laughs> maybe we should figure out a way to, you know, some other way, like calling an airstrike or something like that instead of figuring out the best way for us to fight with these sticks. I mean, is that is that is that, is that that too bleak of a way to think about it? Because, like, I, I don't know. That was the, the thought I had. It was just like, all right, this is such an uphill battle, yeah. right? And, like, rather than saying, well, you shouldn't have had Danny Glover come out and do a do like a Twitter video. It's like, who fucking cares? You know, like think about the other side and what they have, you know, like um, policing within a small output and sort of finding easy targets. Is that really the most productive way to go forward? Um, But, or is this fight really going to be done in the courts, you know, and, and in the legislature? Um, And uh, I don't know, Tim, what do you think about that? Yeah. Well, I think something that, um, I don't think the three of us have talked about, but that's been in the news a lot is like sectoral bargaining as one piece okay, of this. That? So like, that's like what happens in Europe, a lot of places in Europe where instead of going shop by shop, you mm. actually organize in a sector. So it'd be like, you know, like Amazon, like all of the manufacturers in a particular sector have to come to the table with the government and workers to organize a contract so that there's like a baseline contract standard in all of the steel plants or all of the Amazon warehouse distribution facilities, this sort of thing. Um, So that's something I think that a lot of people are trying to figure out if we can make compatible with our existing labor framework. It's sort of like on the same wish list as like expanding the Supreme Court. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, well, that sounds a lot like socialism. I know. (laughs) It's not like, yeah, it's like more of a German model. I mean, you know, if we want to get super in the weeds about this, like there's also drawbacks to sectoral bargaining because you get less labor radicalism, you know, Uh than we have here in some ways. But you know, I think there's a strong argument that you need like a combination probably of sectoral bargaining and like antitrust to get anywhere close to like having power among workers in Amazon. 
because it's so big and yeah, we've let it just become this monopoly and like yeah. we don't regulate it in any way really by sector do you mean all of amazon would be brought in or just like the part of amazon that's part of like distribution or the part of amazon that's part of logistics or tech or yeah it would probably be the latter yeah and so the so the question would be like, can you break up Amazon into its constituent pieces so mm-hmm. that it actually is something that we could deal with? And I think that's the same question for a lot of these tech monopolies. Um, I mean, it's promising like who's who Biden has brought in on the on the antitrust side, you know, from Tim Wu to Lena Khan. Uh, yeah. He's talking to the right people. Right. I, I think that part is like really can't be underestimated. I mean, you still need like worker radicalism and shop floor organizing in addition to that, but we need some of these larger legal and conceptual tools because yeah. it's, it's too big. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about it in my mind, like just from a purely like economic standpoint, there's no chance, right? So you need these extra economic sort of hacks, right? I think so. Like legal, legal solutions as opposed to economic solutions because economically Amazon is all the cards um except for you know a democratically elected union <laughs> um, basically right. yeah and it's, it's also interesting i was thinking about this in terms of you know we just talked about biden's stimulus bill a few weeks ago and the infrastructure mm-hmm. thing is on the table and people were saying you know maybe biden is signaling the end of an era right this biden administration is the end of whatever neoliberalism what austerity politics whatever you want to call it so it does seem like on the one hand this government is most the, the most Headed in that direction, headed in that direction since like the seventies or the sixties. So, I, and the question is like, is business going to get on board, or can business be forced to get on board? Because it does seem like, I mean, I don't know, really know what the Biden administration thinks, right? But we have to assume like they would be to the left of Bezos, to the left of Amazon, right? And you know, like FDR went through this, um, or like the government went through this for several decades, where the New Deal. Um, was put into place decades before like business kind of accepted the terms of it. So I guess, I guess the question is like, are we seeing the beginning of that process? We're slowly reined in by government. Mm. Well, it's hard because of all the grand plans that he's floating around, there's not really one that addresses this, right? Um, it's almost about like alternate job creation with the understanding that these jobs will continue to exist. So like, you know, um, Green New Deal type of stuff is not about forcing companies to, you know, adjust. It's about creating new forms of labor, like, you know, I don't know, retrofitting houses or something like that, that can create new types of jobs. And maybe those two new types of jobs would be protected in ways that the old ones aren't. But I don't know, you know, I, 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 Tammy, I, I agree with you that, like, you know, hiring, having somebody like Lena Khan in an inner circle is important. But, you know, what is Lena Khan really empowered to do at this point, right? Like, nothing, right? And yeah. um, I don't know. I, 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 felt, I felt this way during the campaign quite a bit, which was just that, like, when that, that the language to try and understand that the power that these companies have in America right now is really difficult and really... Uh, and, and the reason why I felt this way was because every time like Elizabeth Warren would try and describe what Amazon was, like it was just so like, it was either like the metaphors didn't work. Remember, she kept saying like, okay, let's say you have a shop and then another <laughs> Amazon takes that shop. And then it's just like, nobody cares about that, you know? And she's like, and then they put your shop on page three of the results. It's like, like that, nobody is going to say, okay, to stop that, I'm going to wait two weeks to get a book in the mail or something like that, right? <laughs> like it wasn't, it wasn't a compelling enough narrative to show that the power and the destruction that 
that these companies can have. And then I was like, well, Elizabeth Warren, it's not like Elizabeth Warren is dumb. You know, it's not like Elizabeth Warren is bad (laughs) at communicating. It's not like Elizabeth Warren doesn't know what she's talking about this. It's that that perhaps the language to describe it is just not there yet. Like we don't even know what, maybe we don't even know what the actual power these companies have in America, Mm -hmm. hold in America right now. Um, And maybe this vote is like, some indication of that right um Mm. and that uh i don't know now to to sort of ward off hopelessness right i don't think it's like a impossible fight i just think that like uh (laughs) like man these places are so powerful right like you know like think about how much bad press amazon got you know um around this thing and then the end you're really talking about only what like three thousand people in alabama that matter right and um, like Amazon had the power where it mattered for those 3,000 people. And then the question is, um, if Amazon doesn't even have to try to like fight a counter narrative in the press or whatever like that, then what power do we really have, right? Outside of like strikes and stuff like that, which obviously you can't even get to if you can't get more than one out of three people to even agree to, to unionize. I mean, I think, so I... I agree that Amazon generally doesn't care about our tweets, (laughs) but I think there are signs that it's feeling a little shook. So first of all, it did hire some major tweeters to go after politicians who were saying that people were peeing in bottles and stuff. You guys might've seen some of this chatter. They've gotten really aggressive on social media. Is it the the fake account, the accounts with like the Amazon logo? Oh, they certainly have the human like fake trolley ones, but no, just like Amazon PR people are investing a lot more in social media to respond to. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think the other thing is like in Seattle, after one failed attempt, they did end up passing this like essentially Amazon tax to supplement social services and Amazon didn't leave. You know, I mean, I think there are these things that are happening where we're trying to, we're kind of some of it's whack-a-mole, but we are trying to figure things out. And, you know, Lena Khan as an FTC commissioner, like right now she's not particularly empowered, but we'll see, you know, I think the FTC could be useful. I think like our thinking about Amazon is like, I, I mean, I, when I try to describe it, I think of like, it's basically like all of the public utilities mixed with like, the East Asian like conglomerates, you know, (laughs) and it's like, we're like globally trying to figure out like what that means and what to do about companies like that. But like, I think we do have metaphors and we're developing ways to think about and talk about and address these corporations. I'm sure our podcast is hosted on AWS. Oh yeah. (laughs) Everything we read, everything we distribute. It would be so weird if it wasn't, you know, (laughs) if someone was like, oh yeah, it's not on AWS. Like what the fuck? You know, what's wrong? (laughs) Like where is it? Where is it? actually then Who's yeah, hosting yeah. It? <laughs> like what is it it's in estonia or something like yeah. what's going on <laughs> um yeah it was it's uh it is uh it's really sort of mind-boggling to think about the the last thing i wanted to talk about in terms of uh you know jay mcalevy and and uh, is from your piece tammy and it's about sort of this nativism that is uh that might be you know somewhere on beneath the surface and you write in a collective bargain bargain McAlevey describes globalization as a convenient fiction, a way for American corporations to justify moving businesses from the unionized North to the right to work South or out of the country altogether. The rhetoric of globalization has certainly been used to enable union busting and profiteering overseas, but this only means that our scope of organizing must grow to match the uh, ambitions of capital. 
American workers didn't stand much of a chance competing against these conditions. Today, here you're sort of she's uh, describing, uh, or you're describing sort of like her on the border, right? She's in Nogales, Arizona. She says, "I could smell the toxic exhaust emanating from the U.S.-owned factories just outside." The reach of uh, stricter laws stateside, I understood that the free and free trade meant the freedom to pollute the planet, pay extremely low wages, and be exempt from all duties and obligations to society. Um, American workers didn't stand much of a chance competing against these conditions, and neither did the planet. What you write is the villain is obvious, opportunistic American bosses, but by highlighting the chasm between, quote, stricter U.S. laws and a foreign landscape free of, quote, Duties and obligations, McAlevey both overestimates working conditions stateside and pays inadequate attention to labor conditions across the border. Um, okay, so what do you what do you mean by this? <laughs> <laughs> so I I have noted in um, in Jane's work a tendency to be a little bit chauvinistic about the labor situation globally. So I think she is, you know, extremely concerned with conditions in the U S and I think that's good and appropriate. And like, we live here, you try to organize where you are, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's both kind of um, maybe like a little bit willfully blind to the fact that actually there's a lot of suffering here. And um, it's not the case that anywhere else you go, it'll just be worse. Um, and the fact that we need to improve like our connections internationally and that workers des- deserve to thrive everywhere. You know, like I think the workers in like Maquiadoras and Mexico deserve to have a good life. And our argument shouldn't always just be like, oh yeah, like GM moved its plant to like X country. Like that's totally shitty. Now we have nothing to do with them and let's wash our hands of this and just like demonize GM. It's like, no, we need to build solidarity with the workers over there. Yeah. Cause that could, that could happen. You know, this is happening now to our country. It could happen to that country next. Like, we're a little bit of chasing the tail of these corporations without sort of building an infrastructure to understand what workers are going through um, in different places. So that concerns me. And I think um, she even has a note of that in her recent essay on Bessemer, where she says that the U.S. is, has the worst organizing laws outside of really repressive Mm -hmm. other countries, you know, and it's like, okay, you know, I I don't really, what what is, where, what are you trying to do with that? You say the villain is obvious as U.S. bosses, but that's completely compatible with also like foreign labor is the is the problem, right? Like U.S. bosses yeah. taking advantage of foreign labor, and also when foreign labor, meaning Latin American or Asian labor, comes to the United States, it's easy to scapegoat them for taking away our jobs. Right. Um, so it is. It's also a domestic thing as well. I mean, it's not yeah. just like oh, your antipathy towards people across the world. It's also right across the border, or even that's inside right. your own border. Um, yeah, I mean, I, reading her work, you know, I, I did get this sort of sense, and it's something that I think about in terms of like vaccine distribution and, mm-hmm. and everything, right? Yeah. Which is just that, like, how, if when you have these ideas and that, you know, you sort of are applying them broadly, and I think that that is what she is doing intentionally, right? Like, she's like, these are the laws, right? It's like, mm-hmm. she's like Jordan Peterson or something in that <laughs> way. Like, and ten rules for yeah. life. That's right. No, no, I, I, I'm not saying that in a shady way. I'm just saying that, like, this is sort of, you know, it's like, this is what you should do. And I would say that, like, uh, I don't know how the change demographics in this country with a lot of undocumented people, you know, who are obviously going to be unwilling or very hesitant to join labor in terms of, you know, because they don't really want to put their names anywhere, right? And they're a much harder population to unionize. Um, you know, like, uh, whether or not these, I, that sort of, the demographics in the country of 
a lot more people from all over the world coming in of all different backgrounds, whether or not that creates a resistance point to these things and whether or not the resistance point will ultimately lead to like uh, frustration and reactionary politics. Because I don't see that much distance between what she's saying and what like, for example, Andrea Nagel is saying, right? Like mm. what Andrea Nagel is saying is that like we need to basically, we have to curtail immigration somewhat so that like labor can have a chance and that wages can have a chance. Um, like that's sort of like a, also like a 90s GOP type of talking point, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, I don't know. I don't, I think that the the pathway from one to the other is just really smooth, yeah. right? Like like you make one conclusion, you kind of have to make the other conclusion. Mm, that's um, a good point. Yeah. And so, like, how do you see any? Do you see any of that stuff there? Because, like, with the, and I'll, I'll, I'm sorry for the the reason why I mentioned the vaccine thing is just because it seemed like the states that are doing very well in vaccine are like mostly white states. You know, it doesn't matter who the governor of it is, or like whether it's GOP or or the people wear masks or anything like that. Oh, really? Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah, and it's same with like testing was you know somewhat yeah. similar in terms of like if you have like an ethno state, you know, within your you know state yeah. in the country then it does make certain things easier in terms of, you know, and maybe labor is one of them. Um, mm-hmm. And of course that brings up like a whole horrible history of like racism within totally. yeah. labor movements and everything like that. But uh, I don't know. That was one thing that I took away from McAlevey, which was like, well, it's not far from here to like what Nagel is saying. Yeah. Mm. I think the, I think that because of the concentration of work in service and health, um, We've had so many campaigns that are majority immigrant, and we've seen so many undocumented worker campaigns that have succeeded that there's really no good argument for a kind of nativist union strategy in the U.S. Because it's just it would just it would both be counter to what we've seen in terms of the statistics of recent campaigns and the fact that the labor force is turning over so much. I mean, I I think yeah, some of this rhetoric is a bit tempting. Um, but I think it's just kind of wrong and disproven in the most successful and thriving unions, mm-hmm. you know. So, but you don't think it's yeah. alive and well with like I, mean, I think a lot aren't all the union leaders sort of also in on this anti-China rhetoric, right? That China's taking our jobs. No, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I I'm trying to think about recent statements. I mean, I'm sure the heads of AFL and SCAU have essentially have occasionally said quite yeah. nativist things. Um, but yeah, I, w- I guess I would just say like at, you know, the level of union locals. And if you, if you look at kind of the most promising campaigns, they have been really black and brown and immigrant. Okay. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, but, I think that I, I, I'm not endorsing. No, I know. Move from like, from <laughs> I know you're not to Andrea Nagel. I'm, just simply saying that, like, I think that that logic follows for a lot of people. For sure. Right? Which yeah. is just like, wouldn't this just be easier if we just had, could print these things in one language and all these people had known each other's families for six Definitely. generations, you know? Um, and I think that the answer to that is probably is easier if the people all speak the same language and have families have known each other for six generations. But that's not really the situation anywhere. Yeah. You know, like, exactly. you look at, like, that's what happens thing. with chicken farms in North Carolina or throughout the South, right? Like it's like the entire population of those places gets replaced within like, you know, 15 years or something like that. Right. And then you have a whole other form of, 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 uh, of, of challenges, but it's not like you were dealing with like static populations that are, you know, being like 
destroyed by all the outsiders, right? Like it's just that all these populations are in flux all the time um, and that they have different challenges and that it's, you know, trying to wish back to like a 1950s type of place is like, is just as nostalgic as, you know, the other side, which is like, well, you know, like, like international workers of the world unite, which is also kind of nostalgic, you know, (laughs) at least one is like an actual goal and the others just seems to be like a reactionary nostalgia. For sure. And, you know, I think like, so yeah, as you were saying, like empirically, like it's just not the case that there's any real labor situation like that. But even like in Bessemer, I mean, you're talking about a pretty, not homogenous, but like a fairly stable and similar local population, you know? Yeah. Right, right. And the union didn't succeed there. <laughs> so right. so yes. it just really depends. Yeah. But I mean, part of it is also, as Jay was saying, like Amazon's strategy and most businesses' strategy is high turnover. And I think that threat of losing your job is kind of, was probably Amazon's biggest you know, biggest weapon in all of this, um, either, uh, you know, moving the factory away or um, just we're going to fire you because we fire everyone, you know, every, every yeah. three months anyway. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I want just like to go back really quickly to the, the, in terms of like, is this a paradigm shift or whatever? I think the thing that for a lot of economic historians or economic analyses were pointing out was that from like the seventies until it seems like now the emphasis has been upon, has the emphasis upon employment, full employment, which was the goal of the United States government from the 30s to the 70s, which pushed away. And they always pushed it away by saying, we're afraid of inflation, right? Mm-hmm. That's like Larry Summers, like two months ago. Right. <laughs> and so these these Biden bills, I think for people who are optimistic that they might signal that the gov- government was no longer afraid of inflation and therefore was willing to push for full employment. And I do think that is one economic factor that may come into play. Like if there is more full employment mm. in this country, that would give people more confidence to try to unionize. Cause I think that is that, that is that fear of there's so few jobs around. And if I lose this one, I don't, I can't get a second job that um, probably I th- I assume, right. Is, is a real psychological weapon against a lot of workers. Um, but you know, so th- that's, yeah. that's something to, I think, I think about in terms of how, how committed is the government uh, going to be to full employment. All we have is like one bill or two bills, but we'll see. All right. Yeah. No, I think okay. That's a good two point. two last questions before we uh, end for the week. The first is like based this narrative out there, and I want you to address it. T- we're asking Tammy all the questions here because Tammy is the expert. <laughs> no. um, I know that Tammy would not say that she's an expert, but she's an expert in this. Um, you know, there's a there's a sense out there that like all of this national attention to a losing effort was actually bad for labor. Right, that um, basically you put all this attention into this big, big profile thing, right? And obviously, it's going to be the sexy thing because everyone uses Amazon, everyone knows Amazon, right? It's not like uh, it's not. I mean, even like around here, like the fight to save the port of Oakland, right, with the ILWU, everything like that. Like, obviously, it's a big deal, it's a big fight, but you know, in the end, people are. It's not like the biggest issue here. Right, because mm. nobody actually uses the port around here, right? And you know, and also like people don't necessarily be like, yeah, sure, expand Jack London Square and put a baseball park and some more restaurants there. It's not like people here are like desperately lacking like a uh, places to go to go eat. You know, it's fine I around see. here. Yeah. And so uh, the, the only reason I bring that up is because I'm saying that, that like was it a mistake then to put all of this sort of national attention on something that was probably going to lose? <laughs> I, I think I, I want to say no. Like the optimistic part of me wants to say that 
<laughs> I think no too. I think no. Yeah. And I'd be curious what you guys think. I mean, I guess my feeling is like, this deserved attention because it's 6,000 workers. It's a huge campaign in the South, is, which is an area that we need to fix. It's also an incredible illustration of like why we need to fix our laws and policies and like move things, right? Like this is basically, I'm not saying this is like, I'm glad that we have this, but it is a textbook illustration of almost every provision of the PRO Act, <laughs> like why we need to fix yeah. the NLRA. Um, and I think it's, you know, I think it, I think it could lead to a future campaign that is much more successful. And I put this in the kind of history box of things that we've now tried against Amazon. So, okay. But yeah. like, do you think that there's an effect of it though, that because the loss is so great that, um, and because the thing that has been clarified for people who are very sympathetic to the fight, which is that the fight is really big, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not going to just be people organizing on the ground grassroots style, that there would be a shift of emphasis away from grassroots labor organizing um, or even national level labor organizing to like electoral organizing, right? Electoral policy. Well, the only way that we can fix that is this is if somebody like, I don't know, um, like uh, Rashida Tlaib or, or, uh, or, you know, becomes like the president, you know, or something like that, right? Or, <laughs> I love Rashida Tlaib, but this is so hard to. Do. It would be incredible. It would be incredible. It'd be like, <laughs> um, um, I, but you know, like, is that is that the shift? Is that sort of the natural conclusion then? No, I think the natural conclusion and what most people in labor or adjacent to labor will now see is holy shit, we need to quadruple the organizing staff that was down there. And we need to do it for like every warehouse. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I never think that these, when people are like, oh, it wasn't worth the attention and now everybody's turned off by it. I don't believe that, you know, most people still think that most people still support unions. And I think most people still think that Amazon workers should have rights, you know, and. um, (laughs) That's good. I'm glad. Yeah. Yeah. I guess just, you know, I don't know. I don't yeah. think that, I think that if anything, uh, focusing everything on this one loss is defeatist, right? Like it's just sort yeah. of like, obviously it was going to take like 40 t- tries to even right? start to chip away yeah. at this thing. And uh, if every one of those 40 tries gets a ton of attention and then you go oh for 40 then yeah maybe but that maybe then you have other problems <laughs> <It's> pretty depressing <laughs> you got other problems <laughs> uh, uh anyway um and yeah i do think that for a lot of people it'll be like all right well you know if they need volunteers or they need people to go help down there then that's something that i'm willing to do and maybe that's what McAlevey's provocation in this is ultimately you know like don't just tweet you know go down there <laughs> yeah. um uh, anyway, yeah, I, yeah. I do think that the law. Lo- I mean, I guess it would been great if they won, but the loss having exactly. spurred all this coverage and sp- spurring me to read more about the situation made me feel more invested in it and understanding what Amazon did and what they were up against and how this all works in a way that I wasn't, you know, personally that getting into in depth when it was just like headlines and tweets. And, right, and when it did right. seem like, oh, this is going to, like, like Jay, I kind of thought, yeah, why wouldn't this pass? Everyone on my Twitter timeline likes it, so yeah. it must pass. <laughs> I know, right? I know. I have, to be fair, I only felt that way until I actually read an article. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, 
Oh, but yeah, that when I read that article, I was like, oh, geez. and then it's uh, yeah, it is similar to the Yang campaign where I'll, if if I never looked at a poll and all I did was look at my Twitter feed, I'm like Andrew Yang is is polling somewhere between negative and thirty and negative forty percent, you know, and then you look at the actual polls, they're like, he's clearly going to just walk to this, you know, like it, it, it's oh, you know, man. I don't know. It's, that it's, is so sad. Upsetting. Yeah, well, uh, you know what. Um, I don't live in New York anymore. <laughs> That's all I'll say about it. Um, and uh, so I can I don't even know. I, I guess like, the, you know, Stringer came out today with this thing where he was plan where he's like, I'm going to massively expand child care from zero to three and expand universal three and pre-K. And I was like, why didn't you just say this two months ago? You know, like, why is everything responsive? Right. Yeah. And like their, I guess like their strategy for Stringer and Wiley and some of the other people who are, I, they're not even within spinning distance of Yang at this point, oh, but you God. know, within like a bazooka range of Yang, <laughs> like is that they thought that he would like somehow screw up so much that he would implode. Like it doesn't work that way. You know, he's the most famous one in a ranked choice voting system. He's obviously going to win. <laughs> like the odd like it it would have to be like a wiener type of situation for him to not win you know and it's like yeah get mad at him because he gave his because he gave his tweet away or something or because he gave his dog away it's just like nobody gives a shit about this stuff you know um all right anyway thank you for listening to our show uh we do this every week sometimes we do it twice a week if you want the twice a week then we would encourage you to sign up either for our Substack subscription level, which is $5 a month, or for our Patreon. Um, those can be found on our, I don't know, it's like TTS, you know, it's patreon.com slash ttsgpod and goodbye.substack.com. You can always email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Um, but I don't know, most of you can probably figure out how to reach us. We encourage you to reach <laughs> us out to us. Uh, we're, you know, and join our community. Um, one of the things that you get when you sign up with us is that you get access to our Discord, which is very lively and compelling and has me learn lots of things. There's all sorts of fun things that are going on. We have a book club going on where we talk to the author of the book, which is huge, you know. Um, Andy runs like a Marxist reading group. <laughs> I don't run it, I guess. <laughs> I've guessed it once. Andy lectures on Marx in the yeah. Discord. <laughs> We have at least one person who joined because of the Marxist reading group. So, look, I, I, I don't say this to mock the Marxist reading group. I think it's awesome. You know, I just was like surprised when it happened. I was yeah, like, we have a Marxist reading group. Now? I it's found great. out like a few weeks later. I know. I know. I like, what's this Marxist reading group? Yeah, we hang out in different areas of the Discord, and so <laughs> something happens in the gaming or uh nba it's like we or the golf where we watch the masters like then i'm you know i'm generally clued and there are other parts of this <laughs> where i don't know what's happening including the marxist reading group apparently <laughs> um but um until next week uh yeah i will we we will talk to you <laughs> gracias